You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Hey everyone, welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and creative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Jesse Thorne. If your definition of success is, I'm doing work that I'm proud of, the thing to do is make something, think about how it could be better, make something again. Jesse Thorne is an entrepreneur, podcaster, and men's style mentor who has spent his life helping others thoughtfully share their stories. Described by Fast Company Magazine as the most important person in entertainment you've never heard of, Jesse began his career hosting The Sound of Young America, which made him the youngest nationally broadcast host in the history of American public radio. Rebranded as Bullseye and airing on NPR stations nationwide, the show offers listeners a taste of the best in popular art and culture through interviews with artists, actors, and activists. As the founder and owner of the artist-owned, audience-supported podcast network, MaximumFun.org, Jesse provides a welcoming space for other podcasters to reach a wide audience while still retaining creative control over their shows. I am so looking forward to this interview with Jesse Thorne. Hi, Jesse. How are you? I'm doing all right. How about you? 
Excellent. Thank you so much for being on to Dine for the podcast. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you for having me. Sure. I'm going to start this podcast the way I start all my podcasts, which is a little bit different. I'm going to ask you your favorite restaurant, because I really believe that someone's favorite restaurant is the beginning of their story in a small way, a nod to their culture, where they're from, or just kind of what kind of food they love. So um, A, where are you coming in from? And B, if you could take me anywhere from a restaurant standpoint, where would you take me? I'm from... San Francisco originally, but I live in Los Angeles, in Northeast Los Angeles. And my favorite restaurant is right next door to where I live, just a couple of blocks away. It's a, Oh, well, that's convenient. <laughs> well, at a certain point, you have enough children that if it's not a couple of blocks away, you're not going to go there. Um, I understand completely. It's a sit-down family Mexican-American restaurant called La Abeja. Mm-hmm. And it's been open since I think 1968 or nine. Okay. Um, and I don't think they have ever painted the interior. <laughs> um, the owner, Roy, his mom founded the restaurant and he is getting up towards retirement age. His son is an adult who works there. And the food is great, but more than that, it is just a homey place. You know, I mm. think I feel about it the way that some people might feel about the kind of diner that political reporters go into uh, to ask people who they're voting for in Iowa or something uh-huh. like that. Yes, I've been there. I've been the I've been that reporter going into that diner. So I do understand. It, you mean it, it's it's how it makes you feel. So when you walk into this restaurant, how do you feel? I feel welcomed and mm. comfortable. And mm. you know, I have three children. They all have, you know, they were, they're not as young as they once were, but I still, the youngest is five and they all have sort of different special needs, different food weirdnesses. (laughs) And at the end of the day, I know that Roy and Frank and the other folks who work there, it's a very small restaurant, are not going to care if something goes weird. I know that my kids will eat the food. I know that I will be really happy with the food. The food is really good. Mm. And it's just a home type place. I mean, I grew up in San Francisco in the Mission District. And I, I home used of to great go, restaurants. Yeah, full of great restaurants. And mm-hmm. and as a kid, I used to go to this place that I, I think it was actually called Maria's restaurant, but my parents always called it Dollar Breck because they had a dollar breakfast special. And it's a similar kind of thing. Like to me, home will always be like a slightly frumpy Mexican-American restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I look, I have a lot of like, I, I love lots of kinds of Mexican food, not just your sort of classic Mexican-American enchiladas and stuff like that. But that is always like what I think of when I think of something that I sort of belong to. Yeah. Comfort. Comfort, yeah, feeling absolutely. feeling like yourself. Isn't it a wonderful thing to go into someplace and feel like yourself and you can be yourself with your family? Your children can be themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, I had this conversation one time with my buddy, uh, W. Kamau Bell, who's a comic in the Bay Area and hosts a show on uh, CNN, great show on CNN. And Kamau used to have this joke in his act. He moved to San Francisco from Chicago, where he's from originally. And San Francisco is, of course, famous for gigantic burritos. And, you know, all all those gigantic burritos 
were a block from my house when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So they're important to me. And his his joke involved him miming a burrito and looking at it and raising one eyebrow and saying, you've been talking a lot of mess, burrito. <laughs> and and I was talking to Kamau about that. And I was like, Kamau, I think that is the joke I'm most passionate about in the history of the world. It is far from the best joke I've ever heard. Like, it's fun, but like, it's barely a joke. I'm like, come out. I think my entire identity is built on eating burritos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. It's those small moments, though, right? It's those small yeah. moments where you're just having fun and you're about to enjoy something amazing. I feel like eating a burrito to me is the equivalent of you know, like somebody that grew up on a ranch, how they feel when they ride a horse. <laughs> Like I grew up in the inner city and, you know, there's not a lot of comfort in like somebody, you know, a Norteño rolling up on you and asking what's in your pockets. Right. But eating a burrito. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Let's talk about your experience in college, University of California. When you were a senior, what did you want to do and how does it look different from what you're doing now? That's funny. Like I was already doing what I do now. You were podcasting then. Yeah. I mean, it was this was before podcasting, just before podcasting existed. So podcasting, I started podcasting in 2004 and I graduated from school in 2003. So I had this show on college radio that I started with some friends when I was a sophomore in college. And that show is a show that I have been doing every week since then that is now my NPR show, Bullseye. And what is the show? If you had to explain it or describe it, how would you describe it? Well, these days, it's an arts and culture interview show. And maybe, you know, a little more fun and funny or hip and edgy than your average NPR show. But I say that with no animus towards any other NPR shows. At the time, we did a variety of different stuff. I think we fell into interviewing because we were doing a lot of comedy on the show. And it was just a ton of work. And we realized... (laughs) And if we book somebody to interview, we could take up half the show with that. It's an hour long show. <laughs> like if we book an interview, that's that's half an hour settled. Uh, and we just have to worry about the other stuff. But eventually my two co-hosts moved from Santa Cruz down to Los Angeles to work in show business, which they still work in. One of them I still do a comedy show with. And I was there by myself. And initially I had friends come to co-host with me. So actually Kamau came down from San Francisco and co-hosted with me. He was not an Emmy winner at the time. My friend Al Madrigal came and co-hosted with me. He was on The Daily Show for quite a while. And I had all these all these buddies come just because I was scared to be on the mic by myself, <laughs> basically. And then that kind of ran out of juice and it was just me. And I had graduated from school and I said to my then girlfriend, now wife, I was living in San Francisco where I'm from. So it's like an hour and a half between San Francisco and Santa Cruz. And I said to her, like, I would feel kind of pathetic still like driving to Santa Cruz to do my college radio show when I'm a graduated from college adult. And she said, well, you don't do anything else. So <laughs> that was how I kept doing how I ended up keeping doing the show. And I've been doing it ever since. Now, as to whether when I was a senior in college, I expected that to be what I did forever. I knew I wanted to work in entertainment. Radio was accessible to me in college. And so 
I just kind of continued on that path. I also didn't have, I couldn't get a job. Okay, let's stop there. So you're, you're podcasting. You don't expect this to be your career, but what kind of job were you trying to get and that you couldn't? I mean, I couldn't get any job for a, really? quite a while. I was desperately trying to get any job, but I was applying to drive like radio station prize vans. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and what like do you I, think it was? I mean, Jesse, you seem like a very I, intelligent guy. Why do you think? Right, you but get a I mean, job? I don't think commercial radio stations are necessarily looking for very intelligent guys. <laughs> like that, they might be fine with that. I think my problem was, first of all, I wasn't really able to leave the Bay Area because my my girlfriend was there, my family was there. You know, a lot of people that work in radio, the first thing they do is they move to Boise or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get that job. You couldn't start at the very bottom. I mean, I I started in South Bend, Indiana in broadcasting, and I knew I had to move somewhere small. So I know what you mean. If you can't make that leap to the Boises of the world, what do you do? It took me 18 months or something to get a job as a secretary at a nonprofit. And that was one I was not well qualified for because I have ADHD and I'm not very organized. But that was one where they liked that I seemed like an intelligent guy. They were really nice. They were great. It was a great job. But yeah, I mean, I didn't make a living doing radio for the first 10 years I did it. Wow. And I didn't make any significant amount of money until I was well into my 30s. Like I was making poverty wages for the first 10 or 15 years because... I was just doing my own show. Like even when I had distribution, I found out that public radio shows are a terrible way to even make one amount, one person's amount of money. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American national companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, 
Visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. So all of this is leading up to, you know, at the very essence, explain to people what is Maximum Fun and why did you create it? So I started with just that college radio show. I started podcasting at the very dawn of podcasting, 2000, end of 2004, beginning of 2005. Like the literal, you know, podcasting had existed six months. I moved to Los Angeles in 2006 or seven with my wife because she was going to law school here. And I thought, okay, I have to leave my job. I'm going to try and not have a job. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to sell ads on it. No one was buying ads on podcasts at the time. So I'm going to start asking people to give me a few bucks a month to support this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start a show with my college buddy, Jordan, who did the show with me in college. Jordan was in LA doing comedy. That show, Jordan, Jesse Go, I still do. I produced a show for some sketch comedy buddies from San Francisco. I made a show out of some old audio from the 60s of this prank duo called Coil and Sharp. And then I said, okay, well, now I have a podcast network. (laughs) And really, it was just me. I mean, with those creative collaborators to some extent, but just me running the whole thing for years after that. And as I started meeting people with whom I was simpatico, I would say to them, look, I've built this fundraising infrastructure. I have this idea of how to make money and promote across our shows. And I started adding shows to the network, just one or two at a time. Some of those shows became really successful. And it's now 20 years since I started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And you know, our network now is dozens of shows. I think we're around 30 now. And dozens of employees and dozens of creators that we're partnered with beyond the employees. And it's my real job. And I truly thought, you know, my mom was a junior college professor who went to grad school when I was a kid. Before that, she worked retail. And my dad was an organizer, professional organizer. And so needless to say, neither one of them was making any money. I mean, I didn't even have non-government health insurance until I was a teenager. And I just figured that's what my life would be. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was not that, I was pretty fine with that, honestly. Yeah. Like, like I, I grew up with no money, but I also grew up not wanting. Like, it's not like mm-hmm. we ever, the, the, the lights didn't ever get cut out. Right. And, you know, once you know how to do that, if you know there's going to be that, at the time it was like $25,000 a year, $20,000 a year, whatever it was, then it's fine. And I thought that was going to be my life. And then when my wife went to law school, I thought, well, maybe she'll become a, she didn't want to do the kind of law that gets paid a lot of money. But I was like, well, maybe we'll become middle class on the back of her being a public interest lawyer of some kind. She didn't become a lawyer. So I never expected to be like a homeowner 
with a 401k right and all those kinds of things i felt rich when i bought a car my mm-hmm. parents didn't have cars mm-hmm. so why was creating an artist owned model for your podcast network so important to you because i'm an artist i mean like i ultimately the reason i got into this was not because i wanted to like build scale and deliver return the reason was because i wanted to do this stuff that i wanted to do i wanted to make stuff and i knew that in order to make this stuff i would have to find the room in my life and in order to find the room in my life i would have to make some money and i didn't even know would this be my full time job like obviously i was working as a secretary for a long time I think this is going to be really important to someone who wants to live a creative life, which I'm getting is really at the heart of what you're all about and why you did this. What advice would you give to someone who is at the very beginning and, and, and really is trying to make things work like you were, are, have been to inspire them or to propel them forward, knowing how hard it can really be? I would say, first of all, think about what success means to you. Mm. And I would suggest to you that probably you should do this if success means to you making work that you're proud of. Mm. That's great. Because if you think success is, I'm going to get rich, if you even think success is, I'm going to make this my job, those are things that are not necessarily within your control. Sure. And they could be taken away from you. But if your definition of success is I'm doing work that I'm proud of, you will be able to find time to do that work. And there are Mm. many limitations to that, right? We all have different amounts of privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have children, it's going to be a lot harder. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a job, if you live somewhere expensive, there are a lot of things that can make that more difficult and might conscribe what you can do. But that having been said, if that's your definition of success, then you can be successful. And if you can find your way to that, then I would say the thing to do is make something, think about how it could be better, make something again. Iteration. And what I'm saying is you have to do it over and over, whatever it takes to do that, right? Like I'm, as I said, paralyzed by fear of failure at all times. Steven still. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, all the time. (laughs) Yeah, of course. What if this is bad? What if people don't like it? What if people don't like me? But are you really, Jesse? Because I I get the feeling that you love creating so much that I think you're willing to kind of put it out there and see what sticks. I mean, that might you might have a little bit of fear, but you're also fearless in your pursuit of your creativity. I mean, I have set up my life to back myself into a corner so I have to make things. So that's the thing about going on the radio is every week you either go on the radio or your station gets taken off the air because you didn't have someone sitting behind the board <laughs> to answer the the emergency alert system when it goes beep, 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 right? right? So I had to book interview guests on my show because otherwise I would just have to sit there with the microphone and think of something to say for an hour. And so all these things are driven by my terror, but I have set up my life such that it is not a choice for me, right? Right. And I do love doing it. Like, don't think that when I say I'm terrified about it, that I don't love doing it. I sure do. Right. Right. I wouldn't deal with all this baloney if I didn't. 
Do you have a process for interviewing or do you have a philosophy? What makes, what makes your interviews different? It's some, you know, it's funny. It's, I don't, I rarely interview people who interview people, right? So usually I'm in like on to dine for, we interview people who've created things, which you have, you fall into that category as well. But so I'm interviewing people who are used to telling their story and are used to explaining their vision and their why, you know, I'd be curious to find out, do you have a, a process to interviewing people? I do, but I'd love to hear what yours is. Yeah. I mean, I did an entire show interviewing interviewers called The Turnaround, where I interviewed like Larry King and Katie Couric and stuff, Terry Gross. The reason I did that was because I did not go to journalism school. And like, like I said, it was just me in my apartment the whole time. <laughs> I didn't even have like a mentor or something, you know, it was just, it was just me making it up. And I thought maybe I'd ask. For me, I'm lucky that my show is stuff that I care about already. Mm -hmm. It's my show. And part of the premise of the show is I'm presenting to you things that are good, that I think are good. Give me an example of something you you recently presented that you thought was good. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think a lot about a conversation I had with Pedro Almodovar, for example, mm, Spanish Amazing. Filmmaker. Of course, you know, I, yeah. I talked to him about stuff that I actually didn't know about from before his film career. He was sort of part of this anti-fascist, new wave slash punk community in Spain in the early 80s. That he did all kinds. He had a hit song in Spain. Did he really? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that bananas? And yeah, like, that's crazy. You should watch the videos of him. But also his entire life is defined by migraine headaches, which I also suffer ah, from migraines. So, interesting. You know, he is often on set and cannot see. Mm. So for me, it's something I care about. I learn as much as I can about the thing. I just spend as much time as I can reading stuff about it, watching the thing, whatever. And I try and note what I'm curious about. And then just go from there, like let curiosity lead the conversation. Right. And I mean, like there's this thing, there's this thing in improv called A to C. Mm -hmm. So in improv, often you are going from a prompt, whether it's something that your scene partner said or did or something you got from the audience or something you started the scene with. And going A to B is you take that prompt and you accept the thing that it suggests to you, right? Going A to C is you take that prompt, you go to the thing it suggests to you, and then you go to the thing that that suggests to you. And the thing that suggests to you, like if you say head, a lot of people are going to say hair, right? But if you say hair, then you think conditioner or whatever. And when you say head and you get to conditioner, that's not what everyone is thinking. So I do try and go to the second level of things, mm -hmm. of my curiosity. But, you know, like, honestly, for me, a control freak who's scared of failing and scared of looking dumb and bad and scared of taking any risk at all, when I talked to Larry King, Larry King didn't prepare at all. He couldn't. He was doing, I mean, he started doing a, like a six-hour overnight radio show. You can't prepare for that. Mm -hmm. And so he is so deeply engaged with his presence and sincere curiosity. Like the depth of that for Larry King was extraordinary. He he told me about like a hero pilot that he sat down in front of him and he had just been handed a one page about this guy or whatever. And the question he asked him was, I think it was like, when you take off, do you know that you're going to land? <laughs> it's like, this is the dumbest question in the history of the world, right? I mean, it makes Larry King look like an idiot, but it's a, Fantastic question because Larry King has no compunction about looking dumb. He's not worried about this. 
he's worried about his curiosity. And it's actually a great question because I don't know, what what do pilots think when they go up in the air? Do they feel like they're always going to land or not? So have you adopted that sense of really shooting from the hip and really not having a plan? I don't usually have a plan. I will mm-hmm. write down things that I think are important that I might forget. So if I see something that I'm like, oh my God, I got to find out about that. I'll like put it on a list. Yes. Or at least I'll try and remember to put it on a list. As I say, ADHD. But I will try and remember to put it on a list. And it will just say like, uh, you know, dogs, right? Like if I interviewed Barry Bonds, he's like an obsessive dog breeder. He breeds these like fluffy dogs. And I'd be like, well, I got to ask Barry Bonds about these dogs he loves so much. What a weird thing that Barry Bonds loves dogs so much. So I might just write dogs on the piece of paper, right? And I might have three of those things just because I'm worried I'm going to forget them. And I'll definitely have an idea of the kinds of things I want to talk about with this person. And as I'm doing it, I will be trying to form, I will have a third eye on it, looking at what is the structure of this going to be to some extent. Do I have something to open and close with? Do I, is this some kind of narrative or is this some kind of expository thing? Is this building an argument for something? Um, Like what is the structure of this broadly? But besides that, the best thing you can do is like talk to the person like a person. So has all of these interviews with, you know, artists changed how you tell your own story? I'm hesitant to tell my own story. I think I am both. I think there are things about my own story that I feel compelled to say because of people's misapprehensions about me. But I'm also in some ways uncomfortable telling my own story. So like, I think the main thing is I'm a straight white dude. I'm a fancy dresser. And at least on the outside, I look like a success. You know, actually, I host the least popular show on all of NPR. But what's the truth? If you said that that's what people think of you on the outside, what is if you had to, you know, get to the heart of what the truth is, what would you say? Well, I mean, like one time I was complaining to my therapist about people being mean to me on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And when people are mean to me on the internet, it's usually that I'm like smug, something like that, which, you know, I'm a fancy dressing, successful seeming, pseudo intellectual, straight white dude. I understand why they think I'm smug. And my therapist goes, to, he says to me, he goes, Jesse, do these people know you? Mm. And I was like, well, I don't I mean, they are my, you know, and he's like, do these people know you? And I was like, no, they don't know me. He's like, what's something, what, like, what's the most, what's one of the most important things in your life? And I'm like, geez, I don't know. Um, my migraines, you know? He's like, yeah, you got a pretty major disability. Do they know about that? It's like, gosh, I don't know. I never, I didn't really talk about, I don't really talk about it publicly that much. He's like, but that's pretty much one of the defining things about your life, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, so they don't know you. So there are these things about me that are not apparent, you know, like sometimes I talk about being from the hood just because I am from the hood and it's not something that you would presume about me. And, you know, and I don't want people to think that like the fact that I like rap music or something is like a affectation or a pose. You know, I am from the hood. Like sometimes I talk about the fact, you know, both my parents got graduate degrees when I was a kid. But it was a real thrill when I could just go to the doctor. And that started when I was 15. 
So that is something that people look at me and they presume otherwise, right? They presume mm-hmm. that like I started my business by going to investors and like asking for seed capital or whatever. I still don't even know what that is. <laughs> like I started by m- my business by making a radio show and then trying to figure out how I could get enough money that I could eat while I was still making the radio show, right? Then it was like, I got these friends whose shows I love. How could I get them enough money to eat while they make their shows? Mm -hmm. And those are things that are not apparent about me that I do like, that I try and say out loud. I mean, like the migraine thing, right? Like, it's not just because I want people to feel bad for me. I don't think anybody with a disability wants people to feel bad for them. You know, my, my dad was an organizer in the independent living movement. His best friend was Ed Roberts. He's a there's a state holiday named after Ed for organizing on behalf of disabled people. But I know that if I do remember to say that, like the thing I'm most proud of in my entire career, frankly, Mm -hmm. is every other month or so, somebody will send me a message on Twitter or whatever. And they'll say, Hey, Jesse, remember when you said that if you get migraines, you should just go to the effing doctor. And if the doctor messes with you, you should get a different effing doctor. Well, I did it and now I have medication and it works. Mm. Mm. And sorry. Well, <laughs> like that's the reason I'm so proud of that is not just because I'm like, I change people's lives or whatever. It's because I know that suffering so intimately. Mm-hmm. So the idea that this dumb thing that I do with my life. And I mean, I'm happy with it. I'm not saying it's dumb because I shouldn't be doing it, but it is objectively dumb. But like this dumb thing that I do with my life, it's bananas that I can actually help someone out of that suffering. Isn't that something? Isn't that something that really at the end of the day, you know, you're you're motivated by creativity for freedom, being able to be an artist. And at the end of the day, what you're most proud of is really the small act of helping someone. And look, I'll extend that to like, you know, Jordan Jesse Go, the show that I do with my buddy from college. This is the stupidest show you've ever heard in your entire life. Not one moment of this show is not stupid. This is the least essential piece of content that's ever been created in the history of not just the internet, but human endeavor. It is inane, profoundly inane. And I think like, even in that inanity, A, I think we're pretty good at it. Like, I think it's a funny show. I'm proud of it. I enjoy, I love doing it. Hmm. And B, I know what a stupid thing means to me sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with some things being stupid. I have had real suffering in my life, especially relatively recently. And I know that, you know, like there was a time when I could not do anything. And I put on Tim Robinson's sketch show, I Think You Should Leave, and it made me laugh. Hmm. And so once in a while, I get an email from somebody that's like, I got one that said it was a long drive back and forth to my mom's hospice. And so I would listen to Jordan Jesse go because it was how I could deal with making the drive because hmm. yeah. it was so stupid. <laughs> well, sometimes we need that escape, right? We need something mindless. Yeah. You know, that isn't serious, that does take our mind off of it, that does 
completely transport us to someplace else where we are able to escape from what we're dealing with. And like Judge John Hodgman, this other comedy show I do, this is a fake court show. It's like the people's court, but it's it's real disputes, but the disputes are among people who love each other and they're about stupid things. Like there's these two brothers in Kansas who bought a house together to save money because in Kansas, you can buy a house to save money. Mm-hmm. And the house had a hole in the bathroom wall and bats were getting into the bathroom. <laughs> and one of the brothers wanted to fix the hole, but the hole was going to cost $3,000 or something to fix. And they bought the whole house for $30,000. Mm. And so the other brother said, no, we just always keep the bathroom door closed. So it's like an airlock, for, but for bats. So the bats can't get into the rest of the house, only the bathroom. And we just keep a phone book at the bathroom. So if we're going to the bathroom and a bat gets in while we're going to the bathroom, we have a defense, right? And on that show, which is silly things like this, last week it was an argument about the rules of canasta uh, between two old friends. Ultimately, John Hodgman, the, the, who's the judge on the show, I'm the bailiff, he finds the real emotional content of that dispute. And so ultimately, this isn't a show about whether a machine gun is a robot. What the show is ultimately about is is conflict in the context of love. That for John and I, two only children who are deeply conflict averse, to say within your friendship, within your with your roommate, with your mother, whatever it is, there can be conflict. You can not avoid it, but rather go at the heart of it, find the center of it, find the feelings in there. And there can be justice, which is not retributive, but restorative, right? That you can find a way that if you can identify what that conflict is really about, that conflict can be resolved in an in a productive way that reinforces your relationship mm-hmm. with that person. And like that's on our stupid show. And I like I know that people <laughs> listen to the show and they feel they feel more prepared for the world. And it's not because we told them what to do. It's because they they can experience seeing people that care about each other, having a conflict, finding what's important about that conflict and resolving it in a way that makes their relationship stronger. And you don't see that. That's very, very cool. And it's creative and it's different. Yeah. And then we do different dumb stuff, you know, like do a lot of dumb stuff on the show too. Thank you for joining me, Jesse. I really appreciate it. And I wish you continued success. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And I really appreciate you perpetuating the illusion that I'm successful. (laughs) You bet. Anytime. Have a great day, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefortwithkatesullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 